It's an honor to be joined today by Dr. Henning Thiemeyer. He's a professor of social and behavioral science and the Sumner and Esther Feldberg Chair of Maternal and Child Health at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Henning is an expert in pediatric epidemiology, prenatal exposures, environmental determinants of brain development, and the etiology of child developmental problems. Henning, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me and having me. Henning and I met last month at a developmental neuroscience conference where I was presenting some research on how hormones influence the functional development of the brain's reward system during puberty. And Henning made some insightful comments about the methodological limitations in our data. This was all part of the Human Connectome Project. So I want to overview how hormones are measured. I know you've done a, a bunch of methodological work on this. So in my understanding, blood is the gold standard in terms of measuring actual circulating hormone levels. Saliva is a reliable but noisier measure that approximates hormone levels circulating in the blood. Is that right? That's the first thing I would perhaps even challenge. Blood is not the gold standard for everything, Not certainly not for stress hormones, because the blood that we draw gives you a momentous moment. So these stress hormones, they don't last long. Luckily, they last for minutes or half an hour in our blood. So they just give you one time. And secondly, they don't always inform you that much about the stress hormone levels, for example, in your brain. So. It's only part of the story. So then for measuring stress hormones like cortisol, saliva would be better? Some people have argued that. It gives you a better picture, but I think truly the saliva is only better because you can more easily sample people repeatedly over the day or over a period of time and thus, or even while they are doing other things and thus get a more naturalistic picture. I've read that for cortisol and perhaps for other hormones, the baseline level doesn't tell you very much. And it's more about reactivity, say, to a, a certain stressor. That is true. That is what I've heard too. And that's also in largely what I believe. But note that some people say it's the change to a stressor. Other people say it's the change across the day. Others say it's importantly how much it peaks in the morning. So, but. Many people think the best measure is how much it changes during stress, because that's also what we experience when we have stress, this momentous flow of hormones, which we see with sweating, or we see that we get heart racing. For blood and saliva, you can measure pretty real-time changes, and often you'll see studies doing repeated measurements in response to a certain stimulus. How does that change your hormone levels? Another one that's less commonly used is urine which is more of an average of hormone levels throughout the past few hours or through the past day. Is that right? That is correct. And that's actually where we started most of the researchers. They started by collecting 24-hour urine. So you had to collect your pee into a bottle, let's say, over the day. And the idea was that you get uh, the best integrative measure of all the stress hormones during the day. So that would not be the reactivity to stress. That would be impossible but it would be the integral over the day. And actually, that is often probably not such a bad measure. Do you know Carol Hooven, Henning? No, I don't. She was in the evolutionary biology department here previously, and she wrote a lovely book on testosterone, 
Carol's dissertation research was looking at testosterone levels and spatial cognition in primates. And she opens her book talking about how as a research assistant, she was off in Africa and she had to collect primate urine, like in these giant bags under the trees as they would just pee down from the trees. And I guess that was before you had people like Sapolsky blow darting and then collecting blood if urine came first. I must I have to laugh because I didn't read her work, but I read it yesterday, actually, honestly, truly yesterday in the New York Times about primate research where the researcher reported how he tried to get it from the leaves and under the mattresses that they had or under the beds of the monkeys, whatever that was. So that's true. That happens. Yeah. In humans, with their collaboration, that data collection is easier. But most of us, most of the stress researchers have indeed moved away from 24-hour urine sampling. And then lastly, which is what we were talking about at Flux, is hair hormones. Now, I wasn't presenting on this research and our hair data is still being assayed, but the sneak peeks that we've seen, it's really messy. And you were mentioning how hair, it's not as simple as everyone has more or less the same types of blood or urine or saliva, and you can measure it with the same methodology. Hair is so different in terms of texture and things like that. And that can be confounded by ancestry or even whether you have hair dye or like whether you've done a perm or things like that. So the data is much noisier. So indeed, the first research I think of that comes from France, where they looked at drug use in hair. So they wanted to find doping, if you wish, in horse racing. And so they refined that methods. This is the biggest lab in Europe that promoted this was the Kirschbaum lab in Dresden. And many of us have assayed hair cortisol there, and now many other universities and play laboratories do it well. And indeed, it, there is evidence that the hair, the cortisol in hair is an interesting measure because it's like an integral of the last months. And people have argued, and that is less clear that if you take long hair that you can even show months back. Now, many of the boys or men or other people have short hair, so that would often not be possible. But even short hair gives you an integral measure over the last weeks. That is thus much better than and just the moment in blood, unless you want to get a circadian rhythm. So it's a bit like having urine over many weeks and then the average measure. That was, uh, that is very charming. And people have moved on to collect hair samples. We did that as well, together with this lab. We did it in a big study of adolescents and children. We started to analyze the data in children and found indeed relationships that you would expect. So for example, it is related to body mass index in the way that you see more stress and higher cortisol levels in hair. So showing that there's evidence that this is a good measure, which other people have shown as well. And then we looked at exactly the question you did, does hair washing patterns or dyeing, which we had assessed, influence the measures? And actually that was a very small signal. So we didn't find too much noise by the hair washing. And then we found, by coincidence, a student of mine found that hair color was associated with the levels. And that made no sense to me because they have similar ancestry, but this different hair color. So I thought, how could that be? But then when we dug into that, we found that people of recent African descent had much higher hair levels. So that could reflect, we thought that they were higher stress levels, 
or it could reflect something like ancestry. But then when we did the genetic analysis, we found a very strong correlation of the um, cortisol levels with these genes that encode for hair color and hair structure. And that means that we all know that people from recent African descent have thicker um, hair than most Europeans. We have, I would say, fluffy hair, and thus it's much thinner hair, and this thin hair just simply stores less cortisol. So it's a really biological property of your genes, and it does not reflect or hardly reflect any stress that you might also have. It's just that thicker hair stores more cortisol. We saw that to a lesser degree in people from Asian um, descent, but because it's so genetically tied, we could explain it very well, and not just a bit, but very well. Having said that, it has big implications because it means that in a group of mixed ancestry, you cannot use hair in relation to stress. I'd like to explain that for the American public. In America, it is a fact that it is one of the most genetically diverse populations. And importantly, many of the people who are self-rated white may be having black ancestries, and many of the people who rate themselves as black have, however, white ancestry. And that means genetically they are often a mix, and we do not know what the genetic properties, how thick the hair is. We don't really assess that. We cannot do that in the cortisol assays. We just get a number for the cortisol. I would argue that in a mixed ancestry group, which has a lot of African, recent African descent, this cannot be used. There are some reliable genetic differences that can tease apart ancestry, like the whole company model of ancestry DNA or 23andMe. They're looking at differences in your genotype that can be, it seems like fairly reliably traced to different ancestral populations. And then on the other hand, one of the first things I learned in my class on human evolution is that there's more genetic diversity within Africa than between all other races because everyone originally migrated out of the, uh, the same human population in Africa. So African descendants from that original population, there's more genetic diversity than the small subset who later migrated into Europe and to Asia and to the Americas. You're making two points, and both of them are true and both of them are important, but let's tease them apart. But the first point is that if we have genetic data in our studies, if we have, which mostly at the moment we don't, but if we have genetic data, can we correct for this phenomenon? And normally we cannot do that because ancestry is complex a phenomenon which has many, we have many genetic variations which correlate with ancestry. Not all of them are so relevant. And, but the interesting thing is the hair structure is determined only by very few genes which are well known. So that means we are indeed somewhat able to tease that apart if we have genetic data, if we use and if we have and if we want to use genetic data. So that is true what you said. We can really map that well. So we could correct for that. But note that most, for example, social studies that measure stress do not have genetic data and do not want to correct for these things. The question, the second thing you raised is also very true, that people from African descent have much more variation. So it's actually a paradox that you think 
uh, people from European descent have different hair colors and different eye colors, and thus they may be more genetically diverse. The opposite is true. They're actually genetically much more homogeneous than a population from African-American descent you find on a very, both on a small, even regional scale of Africa, a lot of diversity. We, I personally am not sure how that translates into hair genes. I would not know. It's not my business, really. I want to do stress hormone research. But it might be thus quite complicated. What I would like to turn to is that in the American reality, you get a lot of mixed populations which have in their ancestry both to some degree white, to some degree black ancestors. And that can, then you really need to know exactly the genetic information to tease that apart. And I would think you, you run into problems. And moving beyond hair and hormones, but keeping with this genetic ancestry piece in public health, you hear almost contradictory ideas when talking about race. So on one hand, there's people looking into genetic differences by ancestry and maybe certain populations are at increased risk for different types of diseases. And then at the other hand, there are people who say race is really just a social construct and anything that you see is going to be the result of environmental differences or different treatment, socially systemic factors like this. How do you tease those apart as well? First of all, let me make a remark because it's a topic we have to be very careful about for many good reasons. And the first remark I want to say is that I agree with the people that say race is largely a social variant, which indicates factors from discrimination, poverty, where you live, where you grow up, and is not a biological variable. There are exceptions, and we just dealt with one, which I think is a fringe topic in the real big science world, but it is relevant to some of us, that sometimes hair structure is a biologically determined variable and is not determined by race and racism in that sense. Again, I personally think that when we talk about race, we are largely dealing with, with a social construct. I thank you for giving me that opportunity. I lost a bit after having said that, the question, to be very honest, so you must have to repeat, you must repeat me because... I think most people are on board with that it's a social construct, especially when you think of how much intermingling there is with genetics and that it's more based on certain features. In America, for example, you might not actually be black, but if you're dark-skinned enough, you might get treated that way. And it seems more like this social contextual thing than anything genetic. But then on the other hand, you do occasionally find studies that see these genetic effects. So you say this population is at increased risk for, and then insert whatever uh, disease is relevant here. So those are genetic factors linked to race. Those yeah. almost seem mutually exclusive. I wouldn't know. I, I think we all agree that there are some examples where race is a biological variable. If we think of sickle cell disease, the number of white people that have sickle cell disease is small. And um, we can think of melanoma, where there are some people who, have, who are uh, black, but they have a different form. So there are certainly other diseases I could go on, but this is not what this lecture is about. But there is right. some. I think in the field I'm working in, like neurodevelopment behavior, uh, race is a social construct. I'm mostly interested in, in, in this, if you want to ask me, as a variable, which I call a confounding variable, which distorts relationship. But that is because it comes together with so many other social factors. It's a marker of, as I said, discrimination and poverty and other things. Right. 
Yes, let's absolutely talk about that. In terms of this nature and nurture, uh, yeah, it's not really a debate so much as looking at all of these interactions. It's very interesting to me that you can see social or environmental effects that have biological consequences. And similarly, you have biological consequences like genetics or brain development that have downstream social behavioral effects. Yes, let's move away to that. That's much healthier. Um, for us. So my research indeed tries, so what I've been doing in the last 10 years about is trying to understand how um, not so much the brain influences behavior, that's where we come from, but how environmental, behavioral, and other factors influence brain development. So turning that around. So essentially how we, I said, how we as environment, as society, as families, uh, um, and ourselves are shaping our brains. So is there, are there associations, or sometimes I speak about effects, but it's mostly what we show is associations with uh, changes of brain over time. So that indeed is a very rewarding research line. And you've done a lot of work on prenatal exposures. And to my understanding, when you have something like an environmental stressor that impacts brain development prenatally through the mother, that's often through some hormonal channel. Is that right? That's a bit simplistic. It can be hormonal. And it's often the most discussed. So if you read the papers, they always start with the cortisol and HPA axis. But I would like to point out that many of, it's not only the stress hormones, but many of the toxins, for example, that we study pass through the placental barrier. So go from mother to child. So it's not only, it's different hormonal, but it's also different signaling systems. It's a diet that goes through. There's a lot of, there's a blood flow. There's many ways that the mother influences the child. It's not just hormonal. Megan Herching at USC. Yes, I do. Megan was my old advisor before Leah. And I was mostly working with her on a side project on congenital adrenal hyperplasia, this intersex disorder where females are exposed to male typical levels of testosterone prenatally, and we were looking at downstream effects on brain development, but probably more overlap between you two is in this giant ABCD study, which is still ongoing, like the adolescent version of human connectome project over 11,000 kids starting at age nine and being followed up to 18. It's currently in year four, if I remember correctly. And Megan's lab is focused on environmental toxins like air pollution and how that influences brain development. And she's just published the first, I've seen the first work come out of this work, which we've all long awaited. And not only has she done that very well, but also just to give me, give somebody credits, she did very well with the addresses of the participants to trace that back. So it's important work for the field in many ways. Is that similar to your research on environmental toxins? Have you done work well, on air pollution? Environment in a way more literally. I'm more interested in the environment. For example, I've worked more on the, so the environment in utero, that's much more the mother as an environment. So let's say, does she smoke? Does she take cannabis? Does she, is she stressed? Does she take antidepressants? Then I've been focused on the family stress and conflict within a family. Does that shape the environment and other work has originated bullying? Do you experience bullying of in your classroom? So that's a bit more what I've been studying. Not so much the environment as of, you would say, pollution or uh, heat or we've done some of that work less. I recently did a podcast with Ed Hagen, who's a biological anthropologist, and he's looking at evolutionary explanations for substance use. And it was like 
chemotherapy, where a lot of the drugs that we enjoy, like coffee or tobacco or even spices, they're technically harmful to the body, but in small enough doses, they kill bad bacteria before they harm us. And we talked about how over the course of development, as your immune system develops, it's at different ages, you're more susceptible or less susceptible to that. And that's why children tend to like bitter foods less than adults. But then pregnant mothers are an interesting case here because on one hand, you have this adult level immune system, but because of the fetus, you don't want to have the, that same level of toxin exposure, even though you can handle it. Wow, this is a challenging conversation and you take together so many nice pieces and then sometimes how can I say, I have to dissect them or do I agree or do I have an opinion on some of them? I'm not so familiar with this evolutionary hypothesis and secondhand, I'm a bit skeptical, but I'd rather not comment whether we drink alcohol to detoxify ourselves. I think that's probably not the way he meant it. So I'd rather stay away from that. I personally think that there may be these type of influences, but it's interesting to see that um, there are much stronger cultural influences, for example, whether women do use substances like smoking, um, even medication, yeah, medication or um, cannabis during pregnancy. We see, for example, that it was very interesting for me just to talk about something like that. And then we can talk about the consequences of this, that in the studies we did, we had a big Moroccan subgroup of people. These were a Muslim group who was very hesitant to take, to smoke or to take medication or to use cannabis during pregnancy. And that is not so much a group that always is characterized by the best health behavior, but they have a very clear cultural view on what, how you should behave during pregnancy. So that also plays a role. But these must be cultural evolutionary effects because we do know now that smoking and alcohol, that harms fetal development, but we didn't know that beyond maybe 50 years ago, right? Let me just think for a minute. This is a topic people have written very nice work about. It's quite complex. It is biological. It is what we know, what different cultures know, what's formal knowledge, so perhaps only formal, and what is informal knowledge. I would firstly argue that the idea that pregnancy is a time where you, for example, should refrain from some toxic things like alcohol has been, with, has been documented even in pre-Christian times. There is evidence for that, and it lives in cultures very strongly. Fascinatingly, it's also shaped by culture because alcohol tolerance varies, again, genetically. One of the things where we have to admit it, it can be uh, racially determined, and that has probably shaped also religious beliefs around because some people are very vulnerable. Some populations are more vulnerable than others for alcohol, so there is a complex mix here. I would think there's competing theories, explanations, and causalities. Some of them are very counterintuitive, like infants younger than a year old can't have honey. I learned that a couple of years ago. And if anything, I would have thought that honey is one of the best foods to feed an infant because it's pretty dense, it's high in calories, and it's liquid. So it's, it seems like a pretty natural transition food, say from milk to actual yeah. food, but it's not until their immune system develops enough that you can actually feed them that. And I wonder if there were cultural effects, even if it was like some religious taboos or something where people, before we knew it scientifically, knew that this could potentially be harmful to infants. 
I have to pass on that. I don't know. I know a bit. I know a bit about the bitter, but I don't know about the honey. And I just have to pass on that, how that evolutionarily developed. I can tell you, I worked in sensitive periods, but I wouldn't know about sensitive periods of diet that well. Sorry. How about we move on to yeah. brain development then? Now, I guess there's two ways you could study it. One would be just in a population cohort type way, looking at different groups who had maybe different prenatal exposures or who grew up in different environments and then way later down the line in adulthood, you scan their brains. And then another one would be something more like ABCD or beginning even younger, where you're following the children longitudinally as they actually develop. So I think the ABCD and the new HBCD study, the HEAL study, these are some of the best ways to understand how environment shapes the brain and how the brain shapes future behavior and substance abuse and other things. So I think this is the way forward. Essentially, it is the way where epidemiology, so big and large studies and systematic approaches which account for biases come together and that will really influence the way we understand the brain. So I think this is a wonderful approach. Going starting too much later is tricky. I think you can start later in life, but then you understand not the neurodevelopment, but new neurodegeneration that has been done for 15 years longer. These studies started much earlier. They studied around the turn of the century or even earlier to image old people to see what predicts, say, dementia. How does it work prenatally? Is there any way of looking at fetal brain development or do you just wait until they're born and then you link prenatal exposures to infant brains? So there is different approaches, of course. Let's look at prospective studies that start in pregnancy. There's two big lines of research, if you wish. One is to measure just the prenatal exposures and then measure the brain perhaps at 10 or 5 or 20 years later. That's been done a lot. And then you relate the, I don't know, let's say smoking with uh, the brain development 10, 15 years later. The ideal or even better design would be, of course, to start imaging the fetal brain development in utero. Now, these studies in particular in smaller studies have been done. There is a British group, King's College, that have started to image mothers, pregnant women with the fetus in utero, but very, there have so far not been real efforts to take a longitudinal approach. And this is what the NIDA and other NIH institutes have now set out to do with a big study that has just started to enroll children, where they want to scan them prenatally. How about these plagues of neuroimaging? What are the downfalls to this approach? So this is a big improvement to what we've seen in the past. So there has been a discussion in my field that do you need to establish an association? Can you do the association with, let's say, autism and um, brain? Can you study relationships in 50 children and 50 controls? And um, there are people, many of us, among which I think I have doubts. I think you need big studies, both in clinical populations and in the general population. When you do etiological association studies, you need probably often hundreds, and for many of these associations, thousands of participants. So the first thing is really the size. And that is, why is that, you would ask? That is simply because the associations are small and inconsistent across whatever you study. There is not one factor that, be it genetic, be it environmental, be it stress, be it whatever we talk about, 
these effects have, we now know are tiny. Genetic effects are small, but environmental effects are typically also small. So we need big studies. That's the first important thing is simply the size. The next thing is that there is one important thing that the brain is not like the genome is not stable for the rest of our lives. The brain is malleable, changes, develops with time and with age. And that means that if we study just without a time axis, not developmentally, and we don't study the brain developmental change, we often have a difficulties to assign the direction of temporality. We can't even see, does the brain change precede the behavior or is it really the behavior that makes the brain change. So we think that, for example, if a child is very stressed, very anxious, highly anxious, and in particular withdrawn anxious, that can also shape the development of the future brain to some extent. So it goes both directions. So we really need a um, time axis to do these studies. That's two, so size and time. And then the other thing is that not so much in the ABCD study, perhaps, but in many of the studies, one of the big plagues that I have argued is what we call confounding. So we see many large, even large consortias of children with, or even adults with syndromes, which do not carefully control for even socioeconomic status or other confounders. And then the children's studies that could be parental psychopathology, parental environment, it's very often. So that is the confounding problem. That's another thing that's unclear. We know that in the ABCD study, of the children and schools they approached, the best estimates think it's 12, 15, perhaps it's 10%. We don't really know, participated. So that means we've got a self-selection into the study. And we don't, that may not be very relevant for some associations, but if we go to the behavioral world, that probably is very important to realize. So these are arguably more organized families, more families are more positive for things. And that could well influence the level of psychopathology, but also the association. So that would be a selection bias. So the studies we do, if we think we only have every fifth or every tenth of the child participating, then, and that should not be confused with representativeness, because what they've done very carefully is they have a good mix of, let's say, rural, urban, or different ethnicities, or different, it's the, the sex that is quite representative of the national population, or reasonably, I would say, they did a good job on that. But the selection bias can also work with non-participation at baseline. Is there any way you can measure the effects of that once the study population is actually set? There have been efforts to correct for it, but they can only correct for the things like representativeness. You could say, Let's say we have too few American Indians or too few Asians in the study, but we have some. So we make those of these groups, we weigh them up to make it more representative. I would argue that's not helping much because the underlying problem that all those participated are more organized, are more enthusiastic, are more um, perhaps have less conflict at home. And not only that will react differently to environmental stress once they have that um, will remain a problem. So I think we must understand that this is not a fundamental critique on ABCD at all. It just means that no single study is perfect and we have to keep trying and be critical. Going back to the time piece, you mentioned neuroplasticity, and this is tied up with the 
idea of sensitive periods. People talk a lot about sensitive periods for language acquisition. We talk about sensitive periods for sensory motor development. Less talked about, but I've been learning about in the last year or so, is sensitive periods during puberty that are triggered by certain sex hormones for cortical development and social cognitive emotional processing. And these sensitive periods for something like stress or environmental toxins, like different environmental variables, do you see sensitive periods for the effects of that as well? Where say at a certain age, an environmental variable could impact your brain, but at a different age, the exact same environmental effect would have no effect. So the sensitive period concept or critical period, both slightly different, but very related concepts are beautiful concepts in a way for language development and motor development and things for hearing. They are just in animal research, just tremendously impressive that you have to be in actually positively stimulated by something to develop a skill to, for your brain to develop. Note that we're often transitioning from this positive stimulation to something like a negative impact, which is a bit more tricky that you're more vulnerable at a certain stage, which is the first transition from this classical sensitive periods of stimulation. I am surprised how many people claim to study sensitive periods with very modest, simple designs, which I think do not lend themselves for these big Big, big conclusions. Let me explain that with my own work. So be critical of my own work. I think I've been so critical of other people's work. I'll start being critical of my own work. I was always interested in um, sensitive periods for maternal depression. So if we have maternal depression during pregnancy or during very early life when you're bonding or during childhood, when you try to stimulate your child or later um, in life, when you um, have a 10-year-old child and importantly support them in their housework. And you would want to know, is depression bad at all periods or is it more bad? And how do you measure it? It also depends on your outcome. Let's be very clear. And when you measure the outcome. So the first thing here is when you measure the outcome and how you and what outcome you measures may determine this impact of depression, which I didn't realize how much that plays a role. Every time I study something, I get a different result because it's a different outcome. So if we take the brain development, we had some evidence that it could be not so much the intrauterine period, but the early life period when the child is bonding in the first weeks of life. Depression then seemed to have more impact on the child brain later in life. And I published that nicely as saying, look, there is a sensitive period here and many attachment researchers would happily agree. The only problem is if you look at it carefully is that you have several problems. Not only does it matter when you measure the outcome, it also measures that depression, depressed women typically are not depressed one day and not the other. There is a very strong carryover effect over all the periods. So depressed women that I found, because it's often the same women, they're also depressed when they're pregnant. They're also depressed when the child is three, not only when it's three months. This beautiful um, way of experimentally giving an animal um, a stimulus for visual stimulus is, of course, in real life, a much more noisy carryover effect of an environmental thing. So if you think of your sensitive period in adolescence, that's what's happening to the adolescence, be it bullying, be it ostracism or whatever is a stress for the adolescent could have happened in many other periods. And is it the same that you measure? So essentially, I must admit that 
this idea that there is something like a sensitive period for depression of the mother is probably not a very helpful one. We moved to thyroid hormones to see, can we find a sensitive period for thyroid during the intrauterine period? There was some evidence for that, but it's a very tough concept. So there is time and timing in it. There's the outcome choice. And most of our environmental measures are not like this on-off experimental um, thing that we see in the animal labs. This is a great place we could bring up epigenetic effects. I know of some where something like maternal stress levels not only influence the infant in a more direct sense, like cortisol effects, but can actually influence the infant's own like stress tolerance or something like genetic switches for given the same level of stressor, how will they respond to it later in life? And there have been some rodent studies looking at generational carryover effects of this, where even the maternal stress levels of one generation can influence the maternal behavior of their children, maybe even a few generations down the line. Yeah, this is the wonderful work of Michael Meany and others. That's already 15, 20 years ago, I think, 15 years ago, easily, showing that quite, quite drastically. And I don't know how often it's been replicated, but it's very impressive. I read it up twice. I remember that. I was so fascinated by it. So that's really in. But the problem of that is, of course, to transfer that to humans. The first thing is the work in humans that we see a non-genetic transmission of the epigenetic signal by itself across generations in the sense of really transgenerational or intergenerational in that case is not so clear if that's really been shown well. So does, does what you experience and what changes your epigenome really transmit into the, via the germline into the next generations? That's one thing. But the other thing is, can we find genetic or epigenetic environmental signal in our epigenome that then determines our behavior as associated with behavior. I think there we're making progress. The first thing is that our studies have, again, I'm sorry to say it's so boring, but have become bigger, much bigger, because again, the signal, I remember doing about five, six years ago, a study in just cross-sectionally depression and epigenetics, and we needed 10,000 women to find one tiny signal. Whereas in Genetic studies, you probably need 50,000 or so to find some evidence for depression, some signal for neuroticism and anxiety to find a signal in epigenetics. It may be smaller, signal thus may be stronger, but you need huge numbers. And only now in these child developmental studies do we reach those numbers. So we do find signal. We do find that indeed strong genetic influences on the epigenome that's been shown many a times by people. And we also find some environmental, but most of the studies that are well replicated do simple things like smoking on the epigenome or folate on the epigenome. Those are the ones that have undoubtedly shown even intrauterine effects. How often are you referring to the animal literature in conducting your own research? That's a, that's, I love, that's one of the most challenging questions you've asked. You try to challenge me all over the place and the wonderful questions. This one is really interesting. To be very honest, I'll, I'll just give this away that I, it's been a while since I sat down and re read animal literature like that. Often when you write a paper or do something or do analysis, you quickly have to look up the animal literature as a background, but really be inspired 
How often? Let me think that question again. How often? In that's a funny way, I think much of the animal work transpires to the human researchers without us really formally knowing. So it influences in a, it's not that epidemiologists who do these big studies and do these association studies, go to the animal literature and then replicate it. But actually, I think many of us are influenced by what we talked about, the hormonal knowledge, and that all comes from the animal literature. But it transpires via talks. It transpires via the clinical research that may often be closer to that. It transpires in many sort of, even I would have said, whatever literatures. Don't forget the epigenetic work is a good example you just cited. That took 10 years to come into the human work. And of course, I know it, I read it, but it's not that we sit down. It's a funny way of, of transmission. So I must admit, I don't read rat studies every month, but um, I must admit that I'm influenced by them more than I would admit, I think. I'm in the psychology department and I've been surprised that- One thing, it's also the other way around. Sorry, say it again. In, I'm in psychology and yet I've probably read more animal research than human research in my first year and a half of grad school. And not many people do, which would, not many people talk about it. Back in the day with Skinner, uh, behavioral conditioning and animal research was at the center even of our human models of decision-making. But it seems like over the past few decades, that's went away unless you're doing something more neurobiological where you need this direct experimental evidence. It, it's certainly still influencing our theories in, in these unconscious or trickle-down ways, as you mentioned, though. I agree that it, it also depends exactly on what you do. Don't forget, I'm a behavioral or psychiatric epidemiologist, pediatric psychiatric epidemiologist, meaning that I deal with traits where the animal models are less. I mean, you have an ADHD model, but the depression model is still a bit of a struggle. Anxiety, mm -hmm. it's okay. So that's one thing. The other is that... In the world of we, the epidemiology, what I really advocate has a whole concept of association studies, the observational epidemiology and the validity of those and the accuracy of those, which is essentially often not mechanistic. I wouldn't say that I'm so much in mechanistic research and mechanistic research is typically where you are inspired by the animal research. If you just want to establish the validity of A is related to B, that you can do that without the animal model. That's another answer. So it's also my particular research and the limitations of my research. We met at the Flux conference on developmental cognitive neuroscience, and it's mostly psychologists there. So you coming from the, this pediatric epidemiology perspective were maybe more of a black sheep, although certainly a, a useful and necessary one. And my old lab with Megan, that was in the public health department at USC and I did my training at biostatistics, I saw this almost trickle-down effect as well, where a lot of the latest techniques or eye-openers in psychology are things that people in different fields, like in biostatistics or epidemiology, have been doing already for a decade. I've noticed some of that in this hormones and brain development world as well, where a lot of the things we're looking into on sensitive periods for adolescent brain development and effects of puberty and hormones seems like from the animal experimentalists have been known for decades, and now we're almost just replicating it with an entirely different methodology. Yes, I would agree. And then I don't have too much to add to that, but let me make one point to give you also what is the difference. 
if you're an animal researcher, you're normally interested in mechanisms in the sense that how does, what does this brain region do? What does this enzyme do or whatever? Epidemiologists or public health researchers like me are more interested in what explains the variation between humans, between groups. So let me just take that back. What does it mean? So if I have a mouse and I do a knockout of the gene, you will see the function of the gene. That's a very valid test. The same would be a functional fMRI. You want to see where does it light up when I do a certain test, be it just a mechanical motor test or be it a psychological test. I'm more interested not to see does that gene explain and is that responsible, but do variations in that gene really explain the differences in, say, anxiety later down the road? And honestly, you will find that sometimes that gene may be fundamental for anxiety mechanisms, but there are no variations because it's epilogically, uh, evolutionary, very conserved. And we have seen that actually it's much different things that explain the differences in anxiety between us or much more complex, although this is fundamentally tied to anxiety if you knock it out. So it's also a different way of looking at the world. To explain a brain is different than to explain behavioral differences in people. It's quite a different task. That's a great segue to the last arm of your line of research, which I think then connects most to psychology, etiology, child developmental problems. We discussed depression and anxiety a little bit. Do you want to say more about that? No, I'm go on with your questions. I love them. So I'm waiting for good questions. What do we mean by developmental problems specifically? Developmental problems. Yeah, I try to read that up once in a while because I tend to forget myself. There is a few, if you think of what is developmental problems, developmental epidemiology, for example, or developmental studies, there are a few um, basic concepts which characterize the field. One is that it is continuous. So that a problem is not yes or no, but it has, I can have it a bit, or I can have it quite a bit, or I can have it a lot. The other thing is that it is tied to age, and that is very complex. It's tied to age in the sense that what symptoms express, so anxiety expresses in young children, like separation anxiety is the most common. If you come to the age of an adolescent, separation anxiety is, is a negligible problem, it would be more generalized anxiety or could be social phobic anxieties, which are more common then. So that's another aspect of developmental than the sort of, there is not a clear cut to normal things. Then the other things are more that they are so multi-dimensional. Neurodevelopment typically has, I wouldn't say that they say it's only biological or mostly biological. Nobody would say such simplistic things, but they do acknowledge that environment and biology come together very much. We think the classical neurodevelopmental problems such as ADHD, autism are very heritable, thus they have also to some extent a clear genetic component, which then has both an environmental genetic and a combination of the two where environment and genes come together. These are core tenets of the developmental thinking and developmental problems are thus characterized by these. And yeah. You mentioned that the effects that you're finding, whether genetic or environmental, are usually fairly small. And then when you put them together in aggregate, you can have a complete picture of development. But when you identify a small effect, how 
translationally significant is that if we had a full mapping of what caused something like ADHD and autism from a genes environment perspective, is that enough to do something about it? That depends, of course. And I'll give you some insights. And it's a topic we could have started with and spent at least half an hour on. So let me just first thing is small effects are, of course, because we have, let's say, if we have ADHD, then the total genetic effects are large, just that thousands of genes contribute to that. If we take environmental effects, then the contribution for on, of some, let's say, the contribution of um, socioeconomic status on cognitive development is huge. The only problem is I'm not interested often in the social, the total socioeconomic, but I'm interested in what can I change? Is it the parenting? Is it the diet? Is it where you live? Is it the wealth? And then the effects become small. So it's also how you pass it out and define it. That's the first thing. The other thing is people in public health will make a very strong point that something that has a small contribution to the individual can have a huge contribution to the population. So if the effect of salt on stroke in, in an individual is very marginal where your sodium is, you can show that if we all reduced our sodium intake, that would be quite a big thing. We would really have millions of costs less. And there's many examples where we think the population level. Now, let me take it, however, up in an example I've had with multiple times when I studied cognitive development or IQ, that I say I have something which has an impact, let's say thyroid hormone, of four IQ points. Okay. It is a sort of arbitrary measure, but everybody knows what four IQ points means. And then you sit there and you say, that's not a big effect. And I say there, it's, it is a big effect. And then the question is, why, how could we agree? And you say, I don't think it's a big effect. I would say if I take away four or five points from the students, that would actually be quite a lot because the difference between a student who comes into college and who doesn't come into college or comes into Harvard, or we're talking about marginal, tiny differences of IQ. And many of our parents um, spend a lot of money to get us four points in the, in the MCAT or whatever exam up. And that makes a big difference and a big jump. And so it is with the IQ points. In other words, if I had a remedy for four IQ points, people would take a mortgage and to pay, to pay me. So I would accept that our field deals with small effects. Absolutely. But in many ways, don't underestimate these small effects is what I'm trying to say. In my developmental psychology class, we talked about the effects on IQ of breastfeeding versus formula feeding. And it was framed in this very positive way as if you breastfeed, IQ points go up by this many. And that made it seem like formula feeding was the default. And I remember flipping that and thinking, oh, so formula actually decreases your IQ by this much compared to what is natural. I like that. That's the work of Kramer. It's the Belarus work. It's two and a half points, I think. 2.67 points. It's hardly significant. But it was a brilliant study, the first who ever showed that in a randomized trial. Yeah, it's a philosophical thing. And is that a much or not? You can also say that all our studies are imperfect. Had we measured it perfectly, had everybody adhere to it, the effects would be even higher. It's such a philosophical thing. Leave me alone. It's, if I find a valid effect, that's brilliant. Henning, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? 
No, I don't know whoever makes it until the end, if they have questions or they say disagree, or they think I'm all that talk about hair color and is racist, do reach out. I don't think, I hope they don't misunderstand. It's the passion for doing valid research and careful research that matters. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time, Henry. Thank you.